I love those blessed stories. That one made me a little hungry. I know how good that In-N-Out burger tastes, and we need someone to prophesy that they're going to come up to Seattle sometime too. But, uh, you know, as we start April, there's so much that's happening here that God's doing that we're excited about. Easter is just two weeks away. Amen? Two weeks away. Come for the Good Friday service. Uh, You have time now to start thinking and praying about who you could invite to bring to Easter Sunday morning, and we're going to celebrate Jesus. Jesus isn't dead. You can celebrate that every day. And then on Easter, we're just going to have an awesome time with the resurrection of Jesus. Also, the weekend after, it's our birthday. Grace Community Church, 70 years old, and we're going to celebrate that the weekend after Easter as well. We're going to be hearing from some different people. We've got a choir. It's going to be just a continuous party in April, and we're so thankful. This is God's faithfulness. It's his grace. It's for his glory, and we are a Jesus community. That's our series right now, a Jesus community growing in our relationship with Jesus together. That together is an important part of who we are. Together, we're growing in our faith, building each other up. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 today. If you brought a Bible, you want to find that on your phone. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm just so excited about the people God keeps bringing. There's a man I met last service just, you know, from Kenya and came. And he's like, this is my church home right now. Just been here a couple weeks. And God is building a Jesus community. We're in God's word. I encourage you to get into the word individually alone, in life groups, and then together as a family. That's the three ways we do it here together. And the message today is Jesus over all. Jesus over all. And I am convinced that that's one of the key reasons, if not the key reason, we still exist as a church today after 70 years. Because that's our passion, Jesus over all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your provision, your love. Jesus, your name is above all names. There's no other name given to us by which we may be saved. It is sweet to say your name, to draw near to you. And God, it's not always easy for us to trust you. As good as you are, Jesus, risen, full of love, full of truth, we sometimes hesitate to fully trust you. And I pray today that things would change and shift deep in our souls. There would be victories in the unseen realm that would bear so much fruit. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship is our response to who Jesus is and the greatness of Jesus. And worship is a choice. Your faith is... It's a choice that you make daily. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, then it's daily. Pick up your cross and follow me. It's a decision to elevate Jesus above all other options. And that's where there's a fullness. When we go through this passage in this chapter today, it's really about moving from an emptiness to a fullness. And there's people in our culture who try to promote emptiness. Just try to be empty. Empty your mind. Empty this. But I'll tell you, the biblical pattern is fullness. Fullness of God's presence and truth and joy. And this is a chapter that moves us into a fullness. We're going to highlight four key choices for a Jesus follower. Jesus overall. Let's paint the picture. And the first one is Christ over complacency. Christ over complacency, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor Now is the day of salvation. 
We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and in hunger. Christ over complacency. There was a danger for the Corinthians, and it's the same danger for us, that they could receive God's grace. And we don't earn salvation. It's not through performance, rituals, or religion. Grace means an undeserved gift. Jesus died for our sins, and he's risen. And when you receive that gift in this relationship, you have eternal life and peace with God. Your sins are forgiven. Get rid of guilt and shame. It's all wiped out in Jesus' name. To receive this gift, and there's no gift like it, but then to receive it in vain. Well, what does that mean? That word vain means empty. To push it away. To not really move forward with it. To know that you're going to heaven, but then just think, yeah, I'm going to live for myself until I get there. And there's a lot of ways that can happen. For the Corinthians, sometimes it's false teaching that leads someone astray. It's confusion spiritually. Self-centeredness and selfishness can take over in someone's life. There can be distractions and then doubts that build up. And all of these want to chip away at our faith and drive us away from Jesus when our primary calling is to abide with the Lord. It's called the spiritual battle. And we're in it all the time. We need each other. We need the Lord. And Paul is encouraging them to push aside complacency and choose Christ. Paul is also very transparent and realistic. We don't need false teaching. We don't need a false view of the Christian life. Paul's very straightforward. He's clear that if you live for Jesus, there's going to be serving and there's going to be suffering. If anyone tells you that following Jesus means that you just stepped out of and you're immune to suffering and you don't need to serve anymore, they're bringing a false gospel. But we endure. Nine things, Paul says, we endure. The first three are general. Troubles, hardships, and distress. There's going to be a lot of challenges on the way, and yet God in his grace will do good things in the most difficult times. The second set of three has to do with persecution. The Bible says if anyone lives a godly life for Jesus, there's going to be persecution. For Paul specifically, it meant beatings, imprisonment, and riots. He didn't just write this down hypothetically. Look at Acts 16. This is in Philippi. Paul wrote letters like to the Philippians, and it's a beautiful letter, an awesome letter, but sometimes we forget the context that Paul wrote. This is in Philippi. The crowd joined together in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Do you know why they got in trouble? Well, there was a fortune teller, a young lady, do we have fortune tellers in Auburn? Yeah, we do. On the way to church, I drive by the house. You got psychic, fortune tellers, tarot cards, the same junk then, the same junk today. And this is what Paul did when he showed up in Philippi. This woman was a slave. She had owners, and there was a prophet. Is it lucrative for fortune tellers today? Yeah, because people are lost spiritually, don't know where to turn they don't necessarily go to Jesus and they see a sign and they're like, what, psychic fortune teller? Let me go. And they pay a lot of money. It's lucrative today. But the thing is, as she was telling people's fortunes, there was an evil spirit. See, it comes from the pit. And this is what Paul did. He showed up and he said, in the name of Jesus, that spirit, be gone. Cast it out. Would you do that? 
When you see something really evil, do you know you have authority in Jesus' name to pray and speak and drive out darkness? Well, that's what Paul did, and she was set free. Do you think the owners were happy? Not at all. If Christians step up today and know their light and authority and shine that light in the world, there's going to be a lot of people upset. Because all the money that's made off drugs in Auburn, that money would disappear. Human trafficking, the money would disappear. Pornography, the money would disappear. Fortune telling, they just wouldn't be able to pay the bills anymore. Why? Because the city's changing, the people of God rise up. That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. You mean we could do that? That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. You mean we could do that? Same Holy Spirit changes cities. That's why there's riots. And so what's going to happen to Paul? Beaten, imprisoned, and flogged severely. This is what he's trying to say. There's going to be suffering and serving if you really follow Jesus. And not only that, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. If you're ever following the Lord and you're like, whoo, this is hard work. Yes, it was for Jesus. Yes, it was for Paul. If you're like, I was up all night serving Jesus. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. And, and it's part of that devotion. Now, I'm not saying be a workaholic. I'm not saying try to think that you're going to perform and then earn God's love. None of that wacky, weird heresy. But instead, I'm just saying love in Jesus, love in people, and trust in God. Let him lead you. And there's going to be some hard work, sleepless nights. Sometimes you're going to give away food, and you might not have as much food in your house because you gave away food because you see people that don't have food, and your heart and compassion just goes out to them. You might have some hunger because you're giving away lots of food to people in need that you see and care about. That's what Paul did. That's how he lived. And yet he acknowledged the paradox that this best news, the gospel, good news, best news, that it's offensive. For some people, it's offensive when you say God exists, or that God is good and he's your creator. That's offensive for some people. It's offensive for some people when you say that we've sinned against God, even though it's the truth. I'm not talking like, you know, being harsh. I'm just saying it's true. We sin against God every day. We need forgiveness. There's a Savior, Jesus. He's sinless. He took our place. He became sin. And he not only died for our sin, but he's risen. That offends some people. He's risen from the grave. The only empty grave for religious leaders, that was Jesus. Can't find the body. It's not there. And he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's going to return. And for some people, that's going to be really offensive. Now, don't be offensive. Don't be obnoxious or rude. And Paul was so careful with his life because he knew that message is offensive to people. And he wanted to bring it clearly and lovingly, and he didn't want his lifestyle to cause any additional offense. So he wanted to walk in purity. He wanted to walk in kindness and in humility so that if people take offense, it's simply about the good news of the gospel. And that's the irony that our sins are forgiven, that God has done all this in perfect love, and yet people get offended. And I was one of those people that didn't believe for so many years. And so Paul's laying all this out, and in Paul, and this is so healthy spiritually, he's eager to serve. Do you notice that Jesus is so eager to serve? Do you notice that Paul is so eager to serve? One of the indicators spiritually that you are abiding with Jesus and healthy is that you are so eager to serve. If you're not abiding with Jesus, you're not going to be eager to serve. But if you're abiding with Jesus, you're going to want to use your gifts. You're going to want to bless other people. You're going to be eager to serve. And Paul lays all of this out. And 
This is a fullness. When you serve, there's a fullness. God's glorified. You're fulfilled. Other people are blessed. I believe that we need today in churches, cross the sound, an eagerness to serve. Can I get an amen? amen? An eagerness to serve. The Bible says very clear, we are the body of Christ. That's not denominational lines. No, we are one body of Christ. And in 2022, the Bible's so clear, we need each other. We need each other. You will never change that fact that we need God and we need each other. Because you bring stories and gifts and personalities and blessings and resources that you're part of the body and we need each other. Intercessors, we need you. Everyone prays. We need some people that are going to get on their knees and maybe they're not physically as active, but they can pray and fast and cry out and continue to do that right now. Worshippers, we need you. We all worship. There's some, their voices, they're nice to listen to. Some of us, not as true, but we need worshipers, musicians, worshipers, rise up. In the, we need people with the gift of hospitality, ushers, greeters, in homes, hospitality, tech. We've got people that understand stuff that's way over my head. We need tech people to rise up and serve right now. Teachers, think of the kids downstairs right now. We need teachers to serve them. Servers, Grace Cafe, you got coffee this morning. You got a donut. Someone was waking up, picking up donuts while you were sleeping today. We need people who will serve. We need leaders who will rise up. Administrators who know how to organize. Security team, yes, thank you. Uh, people who are working with our students, discipling them one-on-one. -on -one. What I'm trying to say is serve and build up the body of Christ. Be eager to serve. I'm not saying it with the spirit of, oh, please help us. The church is falling apart. We're desperate. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're going to be most fulfilled. The kingdom is going to be most glorified when together we're eager to serve. And I like the way John Maxwell describes it in his leadership books. You know, we're so individualistic that for a lot of us, we have a mountain and we're trying to get to that top of that mountain. That could be your job. That could be a promotion. You know, that could be an accolade, a role. That could be, you know, in terms of parenting or, you know, whatever role you're in, maybe spiritually, you're focused on getting to the top of that mountain. Okay, that's not wrong, but I want to give you a greater vision. It's a biblical vision. Here's the better vision. It's that we all together are helping each other get and ascend to the top of the mountain. Do you see that? So you encourage someone, you pray for someone, you serve someone, you build someone up, you help someone to learn how to pray, you help someone to come and know Jesus, you help someone to learn how to read the Bible, and what happens, you start to build up. You wanna be able to look around church and say, I remember, by God's grace, when I led that person to Jesus, when I helped that person get connected, when that person was in my life group and I built them up, when I served that person, they didn't even realize it. And so the vision is not just for me to get to the top of the mountain, but who are the five, 10, 20 people People around me, and how can I build them together? Do you see how that vision is so much more fulfilling? But in the West, it's all me, my mountain, how I'm going to get to the top. I had a young adult come after me. He said, I've been coming to Grace for a while after the first service, and he said, I'm ready to serve. I heard the word, I'm ready to serve. What can I do? I was like, wow. I wrote down, what do you like doing? And I wrote down, guys, remember? Here he goes. There's two options. He's going to tackle it the next two weeks. I'm just saying when God moves, don't harden your heart to his word. 
Eager to serve, to serve like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. It's going to lead to overcoming like Jesus. And we see in this next verses, starting in verse 6, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything in Christ. There's a lot of paradoxes. I had to look up if it was paradoxi or paradoxes. It's paradoxes. There's nine of them. Don't miss them. Spend time in there this week. Uh, you might be dishonored by people, but you're glorifying God. There might be bad reports and gossip and slander, but stay faithful to Jesus. It says here that sorrowful, because you can be spiritual and you can have a lot of tears. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, continuing to thank God. Poor, making many rich, having nothing, possessing everything and all that we have in Christ. As Paul lays this out, it's kind of an invitation. Okay, who's in? Paul describes following Jesus, Jesus overall, what it is and what is not. And who's in? He's very straightforward. You can't have both. If you're going to declare sincerely in your heart today, Jesus overall, it might include putting aside some idols. The idols of public opinion. Well, what do they think? Well, what are they saying? Well, what are they thinking about what I'm saying? Well, do they like me? Do they like what I'm saying? Do they still like me? Will they like me if? And you do all those mental gymnastics, and what happens? Jesus overall, not quite anymore. And he kind of drops down a few notches. There's popular trends. There's peer pressure. To live for Jesus in the sound, in the days we're living in, you've got to be firm and steadfast in the faith. It's got to be an inner conviction, Jesus over all. I'm going to go with Jesus because he's worthy and good over all the other options. And you can't have both. Anyone notice the cost of gas is increasing? There's a news flash. It's increased a little. And so gas, it's getting close to $5 a gallon. And you go back a couple years and it was like half the price. So now when I pump gas and I'm removing the nozzle... I just wait a little longer, you know, kind of shake it. Are there any more drops in there? Like, don't want to miss it. It used to be a couple years ago, I'd just whip that thing back, put it away. You know, gas is kind of splashing on. Who cares, you know? Now it's like squeeze it like a toothpaste tube. Like, is there any more in there I can get out of that thing? And then put it back. Well, the price has increased. And if you're kind of frugal, maybe you do some math. You're like, wait a second. My car gets 17 miles per gallon. That trip, that trip's going to cost me almost $20. Wow. Wow. And so you start adding the math. If you travel a lot, then you're starting to do that. Hey, do we really want to drive to Florida? I think it's like half price to fly instead of drive. We're not driving to Florida. You start doing math on commuting and different things like that. And just imagine out of all that, if you put that math together and then approached at Costco or Fred Meyer, wherever you buy your gas, if you approach them and said, I was wondering, is there an option or a pump where it's like $1 a gallon? Because this 450 a gallon, it's not really my thing. 
So is there a pump in back? Is there like another option where the cost is not so high? And what are they going to do at Costco? What are they going to do at Fred Meyer when you tell them, yeah, you're looking for some $1 a gallon gas? They're going to say, you know, what are you smoking? What do you have for breakfast? Like, where do you come from? Like, we don't have this option. Then why do we have so many people spiritually saying, I'd like to follow Jesus with the $1 a gallon option? Do you have that option? Because I don't really like the $5 a gallon. That cost is a little high for me. And people in Corinth are starting to say, you know, maybe we're going to opt out. We thought we were getting $1 on the gallon, and now they're asking for $5 on the gallon. We see there's beating and imprisonment, and some of our friends aren't going to like us anymore. Sharing the gospel is not easy. Changing the city. There's going to be people who are going to kill us with death threats. We don't want the $5 a gallon. $1 a gallon, we're in. $5, we're opting out. The cost is going up to follow Jesus. And you can't have both. And there's no little pumping back for a dollar. Yeah, that's where you go get your gas. That's not it. So in Corinth, they were drifting. The body of Christ was weakening. They were compromising. And this is what Paul realized. We need a revival in Corinth like we need a revival in the sound. We need people who declare Jesus over all, and I'm not ashamed. We had revival night and testimonies on Wednesday. We had a cross and people coming up and writing down the area in their life they want God to revive. I had people come to me after Wednesday night just saying you could feel it in the room, God's presence, what God was doing, God's moving. You know what? There's going to be, and you watch it, there's going to be people who say, $1 a gallon isn't an option. I'm checking out. But God is stirring, I believe, in times like this. We are ripe for revival right now. And there's going to be people who say, I don't care the cost. You can take that gas up to $10 a gallon, and I'm in. I want to be filled. I want the presence of God, and I'm going with Jesus. And like embers, they're going to come together for a bonfire. And it leads to this third one, which is Christ over comfortable. Now, this is where it shifts, and a little surprise, and it gets relational. And Paul pours out his heart because it's always about love and in love. And Paul writes this in verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and we've opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Open wide your hearts. Paul says, here's our affection. Here's our open communication. It's pure. It's sincere. It's in love. Have you ever been in a relationship where you opened your heart wide to someone and they really didn't open their hearts the same way? They really didn't the same love. It might be with a parent, a sibling, a spouse, someone maybe you're dating, and you opened up your heart, and you took risks, and you put it all out there, and they just weren't interested in really opening their heart. And that's what the Corinthians did. And you say, why? Because relationships are a risk. And to open up your heart is to be vulnerable and transparent. That's where God moves. You see, the more we step out of sin, the more we can open up our hearts in relationships. The more we're in sin, it affects and we can't have as healthy relationships because sin undermines relationships. Stepping out of sin to step into the fullness of what God would have for us in relationships. 
And what does that look like? Well, it means setting down idols again. It means moving past what I like into what Jesus wants. And you know what a lot of us like? We like things really safe, including our relationships. We want to be independent of people, not need other people, or look bad or weak in any way. We want to not be vulnerable. We want to be not inconvenienced. We want to be super private and in control. And I'll tell you, if that's your mode, inconvenience, never look bad, don't show your weakness, don't let people into your pain, you are going to settle for something less than the fullness of God's love that flows through other people. You still need to be discerning in relationships. Absolutely prayerful. But I'm talking about so often people are not opening up their hearts and taking the relationship risks. We have international partners, and some of them are in Germany, the Nafsigers. And Ukrainians right now are fleeing, refugees. They're going into Poland. So here's an inspiring picture. Right now in Germany, the Nafsigers will gather together supplies, fill up a van, and bring them into Poland to serve the refugees. And then they'll invite people into the van that they don't know, relationship risk, and they'll drive them back to Germany and they'll care for them and help them in their transition. And then they load up the van again and they go back and they drive over to Poland and they distribute the supplies and then they see another family and they say, come in the van with us and another family of five or six will come in and then they drive back to Germany and help the family get established. Do you see the picture? Isn't that inspiring? You can live like that right here. Because there's people moving into Seattle constantly that don't know anyone. There's people at your workplace that are so lonely. There's people around Auburn that don't have a church family. There's people who don't know Jesus and they don't even know how to take the next step. And you come alongside them. You say, come in the van. Let's go. Let's do this together. And you take relationship risks. Jesus. Did anyone take more relationship risks than Jesus? No. If I said, when you come into the room today, if I said, hey, do you want to be like Jesus? You know, we'd be hands up. Yeah, I want to be like Jesus. At most churches, people say, yeah, I want to be like Jesus. And then I say, well, do you know that he took the most relationship risks out of anyone? He took the most. Now, do you still want to be like Jesus? Well, since you phrase it that way, I don't think exactly. No, I don't want to be like Jesus. Like, can I get the $1 gallon gas? Like, can I get some of that? Because relationships, you risk, you get rejected, you get hurt, you get misunderstood, but that's where lives are changed. And if you don't take the risks, you won't see the lives change, and you'll be content in your little holy huddle, doing what you like to do, read, watch TV, separate from everyone else, not going deep, not sharing Jesus, and thinking, I'm so holy, when it's really not that much like Jesus. And so there's the challenge. Relationship risk for the body of Christ to know how to love and serve other people and go deep with people around the community where you live, work, learn, and play. And for a lot of them, that's where they're tapping out. The last one is Christ over compromise. We go from preaching to meddling on this last one. Uh, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That was a name designated for wicked things, specifically Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them, 
Walk among them, and I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, let's not twist and taint this verse. Uh, It is not saying that someone is better than someone else. It is not saying that someone who follows Jesus is better than someone who doesn't. If you ever think for any reason you're better than someone, that's a sin. That's never coming from God. Every person is made in God's image. Everyone is wonderfully made and loved by God. So additionally, this verse is not saying live in isolation, have no relationships, connection, influence, just find a monastery and just lock yourself in. That's not what this is saying. One other thing this is not saying, and this was the situation in Corinth. You had a community of people that didn't love God, didn't follow Jesus. And you had marriages where suddenly one of the two people would start to follow Jesus. And they asked the question, should I stay married? And I get asked this question, should I stay married? Because I love Jesus and I want to follow him and serve him, but my spouse doesn't. Like, should I stay married? And the answer biblically is 100% stay married. 1 Corinthians 7, if you follow Jesus, your spouse doesn't right now, stay married. Love them, serve them in purity. Don't be preaching at them, just love them and serve them. And that's the message from the Bible. So I want to make sure, because these verses get twisted, that we don't go there. So what is this saying? Well, this talks about yokes, and a yoke is, when you think about marriage, there's no closer human relationship. And a yoke is set up in terms of closeness, agreement, togetherness, alignment. That's the picture of a yoke. I want to share uh, from Eric Mason, pastor on the East Coast. I went to seminary with him, and he has a lot of wisdom and insight. He's been married 25 years. He uh, also um, is someone that develops and builds up marriages. He says, here's the most important things in his observation during that time. First is that two people, they know Jesus. They follow Jesus. They love Jesus. Talking about a successful marriage. Also, they're committed to biblical principles more than personal preferences. They repent when they're wrong and they apologize quickly. They submit themselves to God's spirit. They are healthily known by others outside the marriage. They have a healthy community and friendships. They are willing to receive help for their marriage, counseling, pastoral, mentors, and they don't justify worldliness, and they love Jesus more than they love their spouse. He said those are the characteristics that he's seen for thriving marriages. Now let's go back to yoke, and this is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, where the Bible says don't put together an ox and a donkey in the same yoke. Here's a picture of a yoke, because sometimes people think eggs, right? Uh, like, what? I don't get it. Yoke. Here's a yoke, and you see two people coming together. In this instance, agriculture is two animals. And here's a picture of two animals in a yoke together. And they're going to be doing some plowing. They're going to be doing some work. They're going together. Now, it wouldn't work if you put an ox and a donkey together. That's, that, that, that just might break. That's going to get tense. That's going to be all kinds of rough stuff. And what's the application here? Well, uh, it's clear in the Bible that if you know and love and follow Jesus, don't choose a spouse that rejects Jesus. Now you say, really? Is that, is that loving? Is that wise? 
God wants to protect and bring a fullness to your marriage, a fullness. Now, if one person, Jesus is number one, and someone else, no Jesus. One wants to pray, the other one doesn't want to pray. One wants to worship, the other doesn't want to worship. One wants to go to church, the other doesn't want to go to church. One wants to read the Bible, the other doesn't want to read the Bible. One wants to help train the kids to follow the Lord and know and love Jesus, the other one doesn't want any part of that. Can you see the tension starting to build up right there? I've, I've seen people get married. They've chosen. They say, I know what the Bible says, I'm doing it anyways. And they come back years later. And, and you know what they say, it's, it's kind of lonely. It's kind of difficult. It just doesn't feel like all marriage is supposed to be. And we kind of have divided purposes. Our love isn't really in alignment. We have divided loyalties, divided priorities, and it kind of feels like a divided house. A divided house never feels good. And usually what happens, the person who knows Jesus, they start to weaken their commitments in following the Lord, in walking with the Lord. It leads to some loneliness and some tension. And again, it just feels like a fraction of what marriage could be because marriage is physical and emotional, relational, and spiritual. And that's the fullness of what God designed for marriage. So let's break it down into four stages. And when you talk about protecting purity, honoring God in the word, first, there's singles who aren't dating. And singles who aren't dating, guard your purity. Guard your purity. Don't swipe right, swipe left, swipe when no one's looking. Don't go to inappropriate stuff. Don't start playing games with pornography. Just repent, turn from it, put the blockers on. Guard your purity. You know what happens if you don't guard your purity? Then the next phase is when you start dating. And now people who haven't guarded their purity, well, they've already kind of let the enemy start to come in. Now when they date, they don't wait until marriage for physical intimacy. Only about 3 or 4% of people in our country are waiting until marriage for physical intimacy, but that's clear in the word. Clear in the word. So they throw that purity out. Now we get to dating and choosing a partner, and Christians are choosing people who reject Jesus. And you know what happens? They just usually disappear from the church. It's hard to convince them to come and worship and pray because they put someone else above Jesus. And then they get married, and they're like, this isn't that fulfilling. But I'll tell you, you can have two people that love Jesus and are married, but it's not Christ overall. It's not Christ overall. So they don't have the fullness of what God designed for marriage. And they're not praying together. They're not in the word together. They're not serving together. They're not like, you know, shining the light of Jesus together. They're not. And so instead, in all these examples, it's just going to bed with the world. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. And Paul doesn't stay quiet because he loves them so much and he cares about them so much and he wants the best for them and he knows there's a freedom and a joy and a fulfillment and he just wants them to honor God. You know, King Josiah, he was a young king, but he was wise in the sense that he found the word and he just read the word. And people heard the word and the word is living and active and the word convicted their hearts and they return to God. And I believe in our country right now, just for the word to be read and the word to go out, move in hearts, and we would repent. We'd say, we're coming back to you, God. You're gracious. We've strayed. And the declaration, Christ over all. And it would start in the church and in the home. We'd say, Christ over all. Is that a decision you want to make today? I want us, as we think about that decision, and I'm convinced this is why we exist as a church today. 
after 70 years because at so many key points when the culture was going one way that the leadership of this church said, Christ over all. That's our cry. Colossians chapter 1. Just take this to heart. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, this is Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything Jesus might have the supremacy. I'm going to ask the worship team right now to, uh, to come out and lead us in that. As we stand up, we're going to close. Uh, and I want to tell you, the prayer team's over to my right after service. I'm going to pray, and we're going to close with a chorus. God, thank you for your goodness. Jesus, in our hearts, the Bible says, set apart Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ over all. Jesus, today we set our hope on you, set our trust in you. We smash idols. We repent. We turn. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Break us out of complacency and compromise things of the culture. The idols of being comfortable. Move in power by the Holy Spirit. And we praise you together. Thank you for your perfect love, Jesus, that casts out fear, shame, and guilt. And we abide with you. In your name we pray, amen.